Okay, they're about coming. And see what good stuff we've got going on tonight. Trump booed at Texas rally all for Bumpy. Way too good to be true. But all over the internet, there are videos surfacing of this so-called miracle cream in action. So what are we going to So folks, I have something very interesting for you today. Because it's Donald Trump getting humiliated at a massive rally. We know that he hasn't been having very many rallies. But at a massive one in Texas, he just got humiliated in epic fashion. A gathering of Republicans in Texas tearing into Trump, and he did not expect that. But we have to center it on this other phenomenon, and I think people are getting confused a little bit, because in recent days, it's become very clear that Trump is being defended by people in Congress, that a lot of the early moves they've been making have been done, at least in part, to protect the criminality of Donald Trump, to obscure it, to excuse it, to whataboutism it away. But the point is, people are mistaking that for they still want Trump in charge. And I don't think that's quite the case. So I want to play you a clip really tearing into these new committees and how they're disgusting. But then get into the fact that people are moving away from Trump. Analysts are realizing it, that Trump is done. And then I want to play for you. I want to really delve into what's happened at that rally. A big Texas gathering of Republicans tearing into Trump with very little pushback. No wonder he's hiding away at Mar-a-Lago usually. The purpose of this special subcommittee is to interfere with the special counsel's ongoing investigation into a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. This is a shocking abuse of power. But it's not just the usual efforts by members on the other side of the aisle to once again do Donald Trump's dirty work. This time, they're trying to protect themselves. One of them... A member from Pennsylvania had his cell phone seized pursuant to a court order finding probable cause that he committed a crime. Yet he has indicated that he wants to be on this subcommittee so that he can undermine a criminal investigation into himself. My Republican counterparts can dress up the subcommittee with a menacing name, but let's call it what it really is. The Republican Committee to Obstruct Justice. That was the new congressman from New York's 10th Congressional District, former impeachment counsel Daniel Goldman, laying out the scheme planned by the Republican House majority to, it appears at least for now, interrupt criminal investigations of themselves and their actions in 2020 and 2021. For the record, that vote to create that subcommittee passed 221 to 211 along strict party lines. It's just one of a barrage of actions from the new Trumpist House in its first week in action. For more on all of it, I'm joined now by Congressman Ruben Gallego, Democrat of Arizona, who served in the Armed Services, Veterans Affairs, and National Resources Committee. Um, Congressman, first let's start with this new subcommittee. Uh, I guess there's a bunch of ways that you could imagine the, a version of this being a perfectly legitimate inquiry. Uh, no. you're, you're, you're shaking your head. Why not? No, there is no This is a cover-up committee. It is a sanctioned cover-up committee by Kevin McCarthy, that he has sanctioned for the sole purpose of getting those radicals to vote for him for speaker. And it is essentially giving power to those that are being investigated to have power over those that have the right to investigate them. This is as if we gave the mafia the right to investigate the South District of New York uh, attorney's office, right? Or have the FBI to invest be investigating uh, some of our worst criminals. 
There's nothing logical about this, and let's not mince word about that. Yeah, what, why do you think this was such a, this was obviously a clear obsessive focus of those holdouts uh, in, in the House. It was one of the big things that they, they talked about in the run-up. Why do you think they were so laser-focused on it? Well, when you act with criminal intent and criminal guilt, probably because you have some criminality. I mean, the basic honest answer. <laughs> Let's go right to the, the most uh, uh, direct answer. You know, they have something to hide. So they're going to try to use whatever power they can to hide it. And they don't have Trump in power anymore to help them out. This is only one of a number of committees that, of course, are going to be used to launch investigations. Uh, and, and, of course, that's standard, right? I mean, every, you know, Congress has oversight. The majority committees launch investigations. I guess there's, there's, there's sort of two different ways, I think, to think about the, the coming onslaught from House Republicans, right? Hunter Biden and an oversight with James Comer is... You know, this is going to really be dangerous and it will um, mess with the work of, say, the special counsel or it will drive headlines that American people will see. And the other is this will be as productive as the Durham uh, investigation, which was the much ballyhooed counter Mueller investigation launched uh, at the behest of Donald Trump and then William Barr that basically did nothing and has come up with like a bunch of acquittals. Well, yes. So the problem is that nothing will happen. But also the problem is nothing will happen. So you can listen in that first clip. It really does demonstrate, guys, that these committees exist to protect Trump in a broad sense. But it's not just about Trump, because, again, the Republican Party is moving away from him. We have to understand that protecting Trump right now is a byproduct. Pre-J6, pre-these midterm defeats, protecting Trump was the goal. He was the cult leader. They had to protect him with any sacrifice they needed to make. Now it's like they got to you got to protect Trump because if he goes down, everyone goes down with them. So the people in that room protecting Trump don't really give a damn about Trump anymore. It's actually about, you know, if he goes down for J6, then all of our cool conspirators, all of us who play roles direct and indirect in the coup will be punished politically at best, but legally at worst. And we don't want that. So all of these moves, yes, will protect Trump as a byproduct, but they're really about protecting all of us as corrupt crony GOP members of Congress. So we have to get to this reality, though. Just come walk back through the door and everything is going to be first before. No, it's not. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I, again, I am, you know, in my Democratic friends and press friends out of panic. I said, "Don't worry, you're probably going to get something crazy." <laughs> you know, it, 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 Trump was good for business. I mean, and, and, you know, he kept everybody on cable TV. He, he, everybody had a column they could write. Everybody could start an organization. All right, and th th there's a lot of interest in keeping Trump around. I don't think the voters want him around much more, and I think increasingly Republican voters like to have somebody new and younger. Let's get to, uh, this, so you've really cut to the chase. I was going to spend a little longer on sort of the balance of power between the two parties and all this, but, but of course, so much, as you so well know, having uh, been with Bill Clinton in 92, is, is candidate dependent and presidential race dependent. Let's just cut right to that in, in each case. Let's begin with, let's begin with the Republicans, which then I really want to spend a little more time on the Democrats. But so why, I mean, okay, the obvious counter argument to you is Trump's been counted out before. He's still kind of close to even in the polls with DeSantis. He'll get indicted, but he won't be convicted before 
probably election day or nominating day in 24. Uh, he still is a talented demagogue. I mean, why are you so confident he's he's done? Well, I, he's really the polls I've seen. He's not even with DeSantis. DeSantis is pretty much ahead of him. And when you're the former president and you see that he's at CPAC, I match that, uh, if you see that he got like 54%. Well, if you get 54% at CPAC, you're not going to do, that's not a good sign. It's really not. And just if you ask Republicans, I hope Donald Trump runs a side for somebody else, to somebody else to get 62%. Now, the the danger, I have to acknowledge that there is a path that he could wreak havoc, and it is this. In the Democratic Party, our primaries are mostly proportional, right? So if you get, you know, if you follow 60, you know, follow 35, 32, 33, then you end up with. I am so excited to open up these tents with you. And by the way, we did this 100% based on your comments. 35, and other guy gets 32, 33. The Republicans are mostly going to take off. So if you win 35, 33, 32, you end up with 35. Right? You get the whole ball of wax. You get 100%. So would a candidate with a deep, loyal, consistent base cause a lot of damage in a Republican nominating process? The answer is yes. But that's the only way, only path that he would have. And that, that assumes that not a lot more is coming. You know, and the other thing that the Republicans, even the far right people, electability is going to be a big freaking issue. Okay? You can send, the Santas can say in a debate, you can you can renominate Trump, right? And you lost in 18, you lost in 2020, you lost in 2022. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of losing. Now, all the Democrats want, yeah, you could, you could, the speech writes itself, right? right, right. It, it just writes itself. You don't have to think to write that speech. And I, I, just, I, and I just don't see him being a, a big force. And that Olivia Newsy piece in New York Magazine, if you haven't read it, you're not a good citizen. And, and it, it was well written. And, you know, I, it sure sounded true the whole way. And, portrait that it print. I did not because I'm incapable of it, but if I were a better human being, I'd have felt sorry for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, does he blow things up on his way out, though? Does he kind of gracefully endorse whoever the Republican nominee is and tell his people to vote for them? He thought it would hurt the Republicans. He would. I don't think he, he's not like the Republican like he used to be, all right? Right. Because he doesn't want you know, the Republican Party finally won an election after failing in 2018, 2020, and 2022 under the leadership of former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. The Republicans have once again captured the presidency. He don't want that at all. And this brings us to Texas because Texas is just starting. They're gathering finally right now for their legislative session, where, of course, the Republicans in that state are going to gather and do evil for the next few months or whatever it is. But, you know, uh, there you would think that Trump would still be popular. But growing numbers of Republicans at this gathering are tearing into Trump. 
there and on social media and, and everywhere. And they're doing it in a way that's not generating any pushback. Like, it's not generating a lot of controversy, and no one in Texas seems to be defending Trump. And it's a sign that he has lost everything. And notes here, heading into this legislative session, State House Speaker Dave Phelan has become notably outspoken against Trump after staying out of the fray since he took the gavel in 2021. After Trump's candidate Herschel Walker lost the U.S. Senate runoff in Georgia last month, he said that having the best candidate actually matters and also made the same point after New Year's. And he said when, when Trump tried to blame the abortion issue and not Trump that caused the Republicans to underwhelm the midterms, he responded by saying the GOP has lost control of the Senate three cycles in a row and it was not the fault of the pro-life movement. It was, the, it was your hand-picked candidates who underperformed and lost bigly. And he says 23-24, may the GOP bring new leadership proud to protect the unborn. And he said he faced little backlash inside the party for speaking out. To the contrary, more state Republicans have taken his side, sharing all of this. And it says new leadership is necessary to restore the GOP to civility. And it will be essential to handling the white, handing the White House back to the D's, as Mr. Trump did last time, said Justin Holland from Rockwell. is another Republican. It says, I'm proud the speaker is speaking up and wish the rest of the GOP state speakers and legislators would follow suit. And so this is big, like they're gathering, they're rallying right now. And as this is happening, the entire discourse is shifting against Trump as the Texas Republicans rally for their legislative session, right? And it's a mixture of things. On the one hand, it's we hate Trump because he's a loser. And also... Great job. not right wing enough on abortion so i'm not going to defend these people but it is to say that he is losing everything so don't don't get it twisted while you see the republicans bend over backwards to defend trump it's not that they want him as their leader they just don't want him exploding on their laps they still want him gone they're just looking for the best way to do it they don't want trump any longer in texas or anywhere else it seems what do you remember most about your school lunches? Our early experiences with food can last a lifetime. That's why food... Happy to hear Trump is booed, but we need indictments. I like it when Daniel Goldman and the rest of Democrats calls the Trump the cons. Out on their shenanigans. All tax-evading insurrectionists should be loudly booed on a daily basis. to point tell your reps we have laws in this country and to enforce them
14th Amendment. Already listened to that, I believe. Entire history of the Maya. Babylon. Yeah. Let's check it out. Ancient America history. Documentary history time. Subscribe. The going is tough. Even by the notoriously treacherous standards of the new world. As a large team of Spanish conquistadors and their native servants hack away at the wilderness. Through brambles and razor leaves they go. Pushing on through to the deep forest beyond. In Nahuatl, the language of many of the expedition porters, the name itself means place of many trees. year is 1576 and just 50 years or so after the initial arrival of Europeans in this part of the world the Yucatan Peninsula and its southern highland areas are still largely unexplored and unmapped this isn't just enemy territory it's unknown to Europeans entirely Like all places at the edge of the map, here be monsters. In that year, Diego Garcia de Palacio, a determined soldier and magistrate in the governing council of the colonial state of Guatemala, has decided to make yet another foray into the unknown. Conquest and glory very much on his mind. Acting on orders from King Philip II of Spain, Palacio's mission was to inspect and catalogue the conquered provinces. Embarking on a grand tour in order to do so. stranger to the miserable deaths of comrades from both violence and bouts of malaria. The as yet then still mysterious scourge of Central America for centuries to come. Palacio must have had an iron constitution to not succumb during his lengthy journey. Besides his role as conqueror, he was an educated man. Born in around 1530 in Astorias, northern Spain, his interests included science and, above all else, sailing and navigation. 
His personal ambitions ranged far and wide. But above all else, he held a grand vision for expansion of the already mighty Spanish Empire. For Palacio, Honduras was to be the key. Uniquely placed between the colossal Atlantic Armada and the ever-growing Pacific Fleet. If he could achieve a means of crossing the isthmus of land there, then the sought-after governorship of the Philippines would surely be his. With it, as many ships as he could muster for the exploration and conquest of yet more lands. But for all of Palacio's lofty ideals, to the indigenous inhabitants of the lands he travelled through, living in small villages scattered throughout the forest, forced to submit to foreign rule from beyond the sea. The Spaniard and his men were simply the latest in a long line of brutal warriors to trespass in the land of trees. Then, one day, just over the modern day border of Guatemala and Honduras, changed. Amidst the gnarled trunks and thickets, one of the men spied something else jutting from the forest floor. Within minutes, they were all seeing it. Stone structures unmistakably carved by human hands. Elaborate buildings, crafted with snarling beastly idols. Confident, mocking in their gaze. And besides, great towering structures and mounds coated in dense foliage, as tall as the sky. The men could only see what they were seeing, perhaps feeling they'd caught a glimpse of something they shouldn't. Hieronymus Bosch painting in the flesh. these labyrinthine structures of a size and sophistication to match anything in the old world, adorned with hideous, powerful symbols. And more ominously, who had built them? Though Palacio was surely familiar with the reports from earlier on in the century, of the towns and cities destroyed by the initial conquests. 
his predecessors, often building their own settlements directly on top of those that came before, like the Yucatec colonial capital of Merida and the Mexican capital far to the north. New cathedrals etched from the stone of pagan temples and pyramids. Surely they had paled in comparison to this place. As was the custom of the day, Palacio wrote a lengthy description of his entire journey across the provinces that was then dispatched to the king back in Europe. And at the end of that account, dated 8th of March, 1576, he wrote an 850-word description of those mighty ruins in the forest. Here was formerly the seat of a great power and a great population, civilized and considerably advanced in the arts, as is shown in various figures and buildings. That's it. But what had happened here? And how had the place fallen into they such ruin? They ascended. Much of the stonework Palacio saw, including eight large statues of men and women, altars, terraces, and a large plaza resembling the Colosseum of ancient Rome. He told the king was constructed with such skill that it could not possibly have been created by a people as rude as the natives of that province. Yet, though they had little knowledge of the site's history, at least that they were willing to share, he does mention certain legends from the time of the Conquistador's initial arrival, a generation or two earlier. Stories of a great Yucatec king, who in ancient times had come down to the region from the north to build a mighty city only to return from whence he came after a number of years. Leaving forlorn ruins in his wake. Palacio's questions would remain unanswered. He would never reach his grandiose goals either eventually ending up on the coast of Mexico, an undistinguished sea captain, hunting and failing to catch English marauders like Sir Francis Drake. It's not known whether the king ever even read his account. Another document added to a swelling pile of imperial archives at the court of the Habsburg king. just like the mighty city itself, forgotten for centuries. It's only today, with the benefit of hundreds of years of accumulated knowledge, that we can speak with any authority about those ruins. 
though Palacio and his men went to their graves with little knowledge of what truly it was that they saw. We now know that they were perhaps the first non-natives to explore a vanished world which reached its peak and collapsed hundreds of years before the European arrival. For they were walking within the walls of the great city of Copan. One of the powerhouses of classic Maya civilization. far-reaching culture that had once dominated the region from sea to sea. For Guatemala hadn't always been a land of forest. Some 800 years before Palacio's day, almost the entire peninsula had been stripped of trees. make way for vast agricultural estates. Elaborate networks of highways crisscrossing the land between towns and cities. Home to a leviathan population of millions. During the early Middle Ages, as Anglo-Saxon kings engaged in spars of hundreds of warriors, very few towns to speak of existed in Britain. On the continent, Charlemagne ruled over a sprawling state. Though this was held together by little more than personal charisma, crumbling into factions on his death. as Vikings and Magyar raiders came flooding into Christendom to usher in one of the darkest centuries in its history. In Central America, vast cities of 50,000 and more sprawled into an open landscape of irrigated farms and settlements. masters of writing, advanced mathematics, astronomy, elaborate calendrical systems, immense public works. One of the most extraordinary civilizations the world has ever seen. All achieved by human hands alone. No domesticatable pack animals existing in this part of the world. And just prior to the collapse of the classic Maya world in the late 8th century AD, the total population outside the cities, hinted at in recent years by LiDAR ground surveying technology, may well have stood in the tens of millions. Indeed, Palacio had been correct in a way. The Maya of his day in the 1570s were very different from their mighty ancestors. 
given the Holocaust they'd suffered in the meantime. Losing as much as 90% of their numbers to zoonotic European disease alone. Spread from the pack animals brought over by the first settlers. Pigs. Today, this comes as no surprise. Though entirely overgrown in Palacio's day, it's difficult to overstate just how impressive the ruins of Copan still would have been. Unfortunately, like many Mayan cities, the place has suffered greatly in the years since. Much of it falling into the adjacent changing river course. In 1936, the Carnegie Institute had to intervene drastically to save the ruins. Many other cities have since been completely lost. To growing urban centers and housing developers. Their secrets disappearing to the black market and the collections of private buyers. For the world at large, besides a few local people, who maintained the secrets of their ancestors away from praying eyes. It would be another 300 years from Palacio's time before their existence would finally be definitively revealed. And at others, like the mighty capital of Kalakmul, one of the superpowers of the Maya world, only investigated during the last few decades and still as yet undiscovered centers. It will take much longer. Today, some 40 or so massive classic sites have been located and studied. All unique in their own way. Piece by piece, adding their tales to the tapestry of Maya civilization. Crumbling walls and palaces coated with the fading stories of their foundations. The likes of Kalakmul and Tikal must surely be the pinnacles of it all. Mega sites poured over by historians, archaeologists, mythologists and art historians alike. But many other huge centres existed too. The likes of Caracol, Koba, Palenque, Piedras Negras, Yaxilan, and of course, Copan.
But even these near unfathomably massive and impressive places often pale in comparison to an even earlier time, a pre-classic first flourishing of Maya society. Hey, what's up? This is Pat Flynn from SmartPassiveIncome.com. Uh, I'm excited to shoot this video just to tell you really quick about how Grant helped me uh, in my of Maya society. Seen at places like Nakbay and El Mirador during the first millennium BC. El Mirador may very well have the largest pyramid in the world. These sites would have to wait until well into the 20th century to be rediscovered by the wider world. Much of their secrets still waiting to be unlocked. Despite conspiracy theorist claims to the contrary, there never was a real Mayan apocalypse. As we shall see, after the collapse of the classic cities in the 9th century, the Mayans didn't disappear, rather changing their ways. A post-classic society developing with the same writing system and culture for the most part intact. Even cities would again arise in the north of the Yucatan. Rising and falling on the ebb and flow of time until the arrival of the Spaniards. Today, Mayans still make up the majority of the population in vast areas of eastern Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, El Salvador, and Western Honduras. Clinging on against all the odds to the lands of their ancestors. Several million of them still speak one of the 28 Mayan languages as their primary tongue. They've maintained many of the traditions, oral and written histories, rituals and dances of the ancestors. For the most part though, after a struggle for survival lasting some 500 years, only recently have they been invited to work alongside archaeologists in the research of their people. This is a story that is still very much being told. Besides the initial conquistadors of the 16th century, it's a tale that features a colorful cast of explorers and fascinated scholars. Obsessed by that lost world of long ago. From 18th century barons to 19th century travel writers and early archeologists to the kings and queens themselves, 
who ruled over the great cities of the forest. And of course, their descendants, who still safeguard many of the ruins to this day. Of philosopher emperors and the birth of gods, colliding continents and voyages to distant lands. Quite simply, it's one of the greatest stories ever told. Hello, and welcome to History Time. As always, I'm your host, Pete Kelly. I've been obsessed with the pre-Columbian Americas since childhood. It's no secret that in the early 2000s, Michael Wood's Conquistadors is one of the reasons I pursued the study of history in the first place. Eventually writing an undergraduate dissertation on the ritualistic warfare of the Mexica Aztecs. Before embarking on a parallel voyage into the early Middle Ages and ancient Eurasia. But all the while, the Americas called. Finally, in February 2022, I was lucky enough to visit Mexico and Guatemala for myself. Fulfilling a lifelong dream of walking in the footsteps of the ancient Maya. Delving into the storied metropolises of that mystical land firsthand. And after spending weeks journeying through the forest, scrutinising ruins and museums, I can tell that it will take hundreds more years to fully excavate the region. There likely being many more cities and paradigm-shifting discoveries still waiting to be found. Epic tales of dynastic conflicts and philosopher kings out there waiting to be unlocked one day. This is the entire history of the Maya. It's well over three hours long and has taken me years to make. I'll try to tell the whole tale here, but there will be many more individual stories too on my other channel, Pete Kelly. So go and check it out here. I'm creating an entire series on all of the major Mayan cities, and some little known ones too. It's a series I hope to continue to add to for many decades to come. I'd also like to thank Dr. David Miano from the World of Antiquity channel for creating the initial script for this video. It's more than doubled in length since with my own meanderings, so think of it as a fusion between the two of us. Here's a word from Dr. Miano himself. Thank you, Pete. David Miano here from the World of Antiquity channel. If you want to hear more about the Maya, come on over to watch our entire series, The Antiquities Travel Guide, Series 2, on the Yucatan. We explore some really fascinating sites. And if you like ancient history in general, there's plenty to watch on a whole host of topics. 
Back to you, Pete. I really do recommend watching his content. And of course, my travel videos too. Now, before we get stuck into the entire history of the Mayans, the most ambitious project I've ever attempted, here's a quick word from our sponsor. The great lords of the classic Maya world didn't have to worry about cyber attacks. Living in a time of spirit battles and magic, theirs was a world before the internet. Today though, with the constant barrage of viruses and threats to cybersecurity, they wouldn't get far without some sort of defense. NordVPN would be perfect for any Maya aristocrat seeking to maintain their fortune. Or just a regular 21st century human. Utilizing more than 5,000 servers in 59 countries, with just one click, Nord is incredibly easy to use across six separate devices and every major platform. It doesn't just automatically scan for viruses and malware, but gives you anonymity too, allowing you to change your IP address to access films, TV, music and games available in different countries. And one of the best features is that Nord encrypts your data, bypassing any potential data throttling by your internet service provider. Pakal knows. Now, I've teamed up with NordVPN to offer you an exclusive deal. Use my link in the description below and get four months completely free when you sign up for a two-year deal. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Head on over to nordvpn.com forward slash history time and use the offer code history time to get your free months. Now, back to the Americas. In 1517, three ships set out from Cuba. Under the command of a rich Andalusian Hidalgo by the name of Francisco de Cordoba. The expedition was an ambitious attempt at fortune seeking. Sailing toward the setting sun in search of new lands and riches for the taking. A smash and grab raid carried out by professional soldiers and adventurers in search of gold, silver and slaves. For by this time, some two decades after the initial Spanish arrival on Cuba and Hispaniola, and with both islands thoroughly pacified through an orgy of bloodshed, providing an easy base from which to go elsewhere, restless men began looking further afield. This was the very beginning of the age of the conquistadors. Unlike the more famous later campaigns of Hernán Cortés 
and Francisco Pizarro. This earliest of expeditions to the mainland of the New World was far from a success. After 21 long days at sea, battered by storms and the existential dread of uncharted open ocean, landfall was finally made. What happened next, later recalled in the memoirs of Bernal Diaz del Castillo, then a young soldier on one of his first adventures, was the stuff of nightmares. Floating in to a wide open bay, the landing parties were greeted by pristine woodland, running tracks past pearl-white sands, and beyond, temples rising. Many other settlements were spied from the boats as they made their way along the shoreline. Beyond the tree line, the white stuccoed walls of pyramids and temples towered over the beach. An advanced settlement comparable to the old world. One of the sites, though now lost, was named accordingly Grand Cairo. Perhaps near the island now known as Isla Mujeres named for the female figurines once found inside the temples there. Tense meetings between Maya and Spaniards followed, with small items being traded, but ultimately fighting breaking out. Upon approaching those strange structures, figures began to emerge, and they were far from impressed by the Spaniards. Bernal Diaz talks of priests coated in blood, their hair matted and stiff from recent sacrificial victims. They surrounded their unwanted guests, fumigating them with incense and gesturing for them to leave. Cordoba and his men soon got the message, heading back to the boats, but not before seizing a number of artefacts, and most importantly for them, gold. Emboldened by the discovery of the gold, the expedition travelled westward to the mainland. Similarly tree-lined and pristine, Eventually, near the modern town of Champoton, they made camp on the land. As was the want of their commander, they said mass, making themselves at home. Perhaps some of the centuries saw it first. Perhaps they missed it. Little could have been done either way. For with little warning, the trees began to move.
huge army of Mayan warriors descending with fury upon the newcomers. In the ensuing carnage, 57 Spaniards lost their lives. Almost every other member of the expedition suffering arrow wounds, spear blows, or both. As the terrified survivors limped back to their boats, leaving wounded and dying comrades on the shore, Bernal Diaz could see the victorious Mayans dancing in the clothes of the dead. After days of agony, riddled with as many as 12 wounds, Cordoba himself died during the voyage back to Cuba. And yet, far from discouraging further attempts, it was the small pieces of gold that were the talk of the town. And just the next year, another, larger, better equipped expedition set forth. This time, led by Juan de Grijalva, the nephew of the governor of Cuba, and a future enemy of Hernán Cortés. Better organised and taking no chances this time, the second expedition also had two Spanish-speaking Maya on board to act as interpreters, captured by Cordoba at some point during the last voyage. Bernal Diaz again took part. Making landfall at first on the island of Cozumel, ultimately they reached the mainland. At one landing place, thick mats of jungle broke up well-cultivated fields of milpa, created by slash-and-burn agriculture. A number of generally unfriendly interactions followed. One resulting in cannon fire clearing out a Mayan city. But mostly, the expedition refused to stop. Continuing on along the coast, Ultimately, they landed near Champoton, seeking vengeance for the previous battle. Again, a large force of Maya soon emerged, and Bernal Diaz recalls a horrific battle, fought in marsh-ridden bogland, swarmed by locusts and flies. We can imagine the confusion of the Maya at the reading of the requirimento before battle by the Spanish priests. A proclamation to the Maya in Spanish of the Christian right to their lands unless they recanted their heathen ways. Thus, in the eyes of the Europeans, justifying the conquest. Their own holy men perhaps making their own magic against the foreigners. The fighting was brutal, but in the end, it was the superior technology of the Europeans which won the day. Specifically, a number of small artillery pieces which awed the Maya into submission. And yet, 
when Degrialva headed back to Cuba. Besides information, he had little to show for his expedition. Eventually, it would turn out that there was in fact almost no gold at all in the peninsula, let alone metals or even rivers. The undulating flatness of prehistoric coral sea floor that can still be seen there in the rocks today being utterly alien to the Europeans. The gold found by the first expedition must have been traded from elsewhere. And soon enough, rumours of that land began to circulate. A mighty empire to the north. The land of the Aztecs. The third and final expedition to the Yucatan would be an even more serious undertaking. This time, led by a young upstart soldier by the name of Hernan Cortez. Again accompanied by Bernal Diaz. In search of gold, eventually they'd head north to the Valley of Mexico. aided by terrible pestilences brought with the Europeans and the support of a huge alliance of formerly subject Native Americans, the entire Aztec Empire would be brought to its knees in just a single year, forever changing the political and social landscape of the New World. Yet, even so, by the time Spaniards returned to the Yucatan in 1526, this time under Francisco Monteo, sailing under permission from King Charles V, progress would yet again be slow. And any semblance of conquest wouldn't be achieved for decades to come. Real subjugation would take centuries, if completed at all. Characterised by a complicated series of back and forth conflicts. Of the three major civilizations of the New World, the conquistadors in the land of the Maya were by far the least fortunate. thus the least well-known today. Often operating as independent warlords, sometimes vying with each other as much as the natives. Francisco de Monteo and his bastard son, El Mozo, are the most famous, still being remembered in their former colonial capital of Merida. But others too, like Alvarado the Cruel, made tracks down the mainland from the highlands of Mexico to Guatemala, murdering and rampaging as they went, fielding Nahuatl-speaking allies 